Section 12 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 2. Chapter 5. The Hundred Years' War. Part 1. At the end of the First Renaissance, France was fairer, richer, freer than she had been for a thousand years, full of liberties, poems, and cathedrals. The sons of the burghers had their seat in council in face of the nobles and the clergy. Never since Charlemagne had the king been so powerful. Peace and order, industry and commerce, art and letters, seem so firmly established, the country appears so quietly and naturally outgrowing the system of feudal society, that we might imagine for the morrow the France of Francis I, when suddenly there breaks out the great war the hundred years war and behold all western civilization replunged in the abyss yet as we look closer into that waste of carnage and ruin which is the french fourteenth century we find in it none the less fair and promising spaces we find in it above all the source of two streams of tendency which will augment with every reign and continue to modify the future they will contribute to the growth of france and to discover them is our object in this chapter but first of all let us explain the sudden lapse into barbarism of all the abuses of feudalism the most disastrous was the doubtful and varying law of female succession different in every country almost in every province and directly responsible for most of the French wars in this and the succeeding century. Let us say nothing of our own Empress Maud, who bequeathed Normandy to her son Henry. That son, Henry II of England, married in 1154 the divorced wife of the King of France, Louis VII. When King Louis, that monk enthroned, returning from a five-year-long crusade, discovered that his wife had beguiled the time of his absence too agreeably in Paris, and forthwith repudiated his queen, he was more mindful of his honour as a husband than of his duty as a king. For Queen Eleanor was a great heiress. She owned nearly half the south of France, and took with her to the arms of Henry of England, Aquitaine, Poitou, Saintonge, Perigord, Auvergne, and Limousin. Henry inherited Normandy from his mother, Anjou, Touraine, and men from his father, and he married his son to the heiress of Brittany. Here was a fruitful source of conflict, augmented in the following century, when the daughter of Philippe le Bel, King of France, married the son of King Edward of England. The three sons of Philip le Bel all reigned and all died young, leaving no male heirs. In 1328, the throne was empty. There were two claimants, Philippe de Valois, cousin German of the last three kings, nephew of Philippe le Bel, and grandson of Philippe III, and Edward III, king of England, a grandson of Philippe le Bel. Which was the nearest in succession, the son of Philippe's daughter, or the son of the daughter of Philippe's son? The question is nice. We know how the assembly of Saint-Lys decided in a similar conjuncture. 
they plumped for the Frenchmen and let the lawyers say their say. Though Edward of England had accepted the hard fact of his kinsman's accession, and had even done him an unwilling homage for his French fief of Aquitaine, yet he continued to brood over his rights and his wrongs. For there can be no doubt that Philippe the Sixth, jealous of Edward's claim, put many a spoke in the King of England's wheel, both in Scotland and in Flanders. The fatal day dawned when a long smouldering enmity broke into a flame. On the 12th of July, 1346, Edward landed on the coast of Normandy with an expeditionary force of 32,000 men. He little thought that with pauses and abatements the war with France would last a hundred years. At Crecy, the first onslaught of the English was terrible. Inferior in numbers to the French, the English forces were an army, disciplined, armed, and acting in concert, while in the eyes of the chivalry of France a battle was a tournament, in which every knight fought for his own glory and his own hand. The English set their archers in the first line of battle with the knights well behind, much as in our days the artillery prepares and covers the onslaught of the infantry. The French, in theory, adopted the same disposition, but in the heat of combat the foolhardy French heroes rode down their own bowmen to get the quicker at our cool islanders, and massacred their own infantry in their eagerness for some marvellous exploit. They fell in their masses, twelve hundred knights, thirty thousand infantry, until a number equal to the attacking force of England lay there dead upon the ground. For the English fought at Crecy like professional soldiers, well equipped with the munition of the time, their arrows rained fast as snow, and for the first time in history cannon were employed to stay and strengthen the bowmen's impetuous attack. No words can tell the scorn, the anger, of the French burghers who had thought to find in their turbulent and tyrannous nobles at least an inexpugnable defence. Crecy rang the first knell that told the end of chivalry. The French nobles had no better luck ten years later in 1356 at Poitiers. Here the French king was taken prisoner, Jean Le Bon, the son of Philippe VI. As we read of him in our black prince in Jean Le Bel or Foissart's Chronicles, of their gentle courtesy and chivalrous courage, their self-reliance and self-sacrifice, our hearts beat high to hear of such noble knights as worthy as any hero of antiquity in Plutarch's lives. The accomplished chivalry of the French made, as it were, an aureole round their defeat. We see them in London feasted like guests in their noble, ample prison, and feel how far more akin they were to any knight of England than to any churl of France. And the churls of France felt that also, and in their matter-of-fact and simple reckoning they calculated that a chivalry and captive exile, however gracious, was a luxury that they could do without. The full price of that luxury they paid at Bretigny in 1360, when the English king exacted the whole dowry of his ancestress, Queen Eleanor. Aquitaine, Poitou, Perigord, and the rest 
with Calais, Guine, Montreuil, and Pontieu in the north. In vain the population of these provinces protested. We may own the English with our lips, said the citizens of La Rochelle, never with our hearts. And for a whole year they refused to open their gates to Edward's army. The states-general were summoned and met in Paris in 1356. Etienne Marcel, the mayor of Paris, was one of the deputies. He was a draper or cloth merchant, the head of the Democratic Party, a man of experience, courage, and public spirit. Chiefly through his influence in that hour of rout and defeat, when the chivalry of France had failed her, when the king was in a foreign prison, the states-general assumed the burden of government, meeting four years in succession, forming the mind of the young prince regent. It is in some degree owing to Etienne Marcel that Charles V was to prove one of the best kings that France has ever had. Unfortunately, these two rulers, heads of such different factions, the regent with his traditions of chivalry, Etienne Marcel, with his new, dim conceptions of a representative government, fell out, naturally enough, and came to blows. Marcel, who had fortified Paris, bought and installed the Hôtel de Ville, instituted a permanent commission of reforms, forgot that the man who means to go far goes slowly. He countenanced a revolution, sought to intimidate, if not to imprison the regent, and was assassinated in 1358. But he has left a name in history. Had he succeeded, had the states-general been summoned at frequent intervals, had the king been compelled to consult with them, France would have conquered her freedom. But going too fast and too far, he disgusted the monarchy with a means of government which had opened the door to revolution. Charles V, who, if he was Etienne's opponent, was also Etienne's pupil, will summon the states-general again in 1363 and 1369. But after his death, they will meet but fifteen times in the four hundred years that separate the closing fourteenth century from the reign of Louis XVI. And more and more, the kings of France will love their own good pleasure in contradistinction to the conscience of their subjects. Milan de Dorme, Bishop of Beauvais, Chancellor of France in 1383, could write the golden sentence, Though they should deny it a hundred times, kings only reign through the suffrage of their peoples. The words rang true enough in the times of Charles the Wise, they would have appeared rank heresy to Louis the Fourteenth. In the midst of that forlorn French fourteenth century, the reign of Charles V blooms out like an oasis. The war with England continued with armistices and interludes, but the king contrived to control the civil quarrels and fights of the feudal nobles, of whom so many fortunately were prisoners in England, and he rid the country of still more dangerous customers by sending away to fight the battles of France and Portugal, the companies of professional soldiers whom a truce with England left unemployed, and who generally, in the interval between two campaigns, ravaged and battened on the unfortunate country that employed them. When war flared out again, the king collected the wealth and population of France in her fortified towns and camps, 
and left the already devastated country defenceless to its fate. The English marched through this desert hungrily, found no grange to plunder and no bone to pick, until, tired of starving, they recrossed the channel, discouraged by their bootless raid. They had scarce seen the face of a Frenchman. If the letters of Petrarch and the ballads of Eustache Deschamps show us how miserable were the abandoned fields and vineyards of France, the towns gorged with stores were by no means unprosperous. They were the hope of Charles. He showered grants and privileges upon them, privileges so enviable that one by one the French cities conquered and held by the English king slipped from his grasp and offered themselves to their own country. Until by 1380, of all their Gallic conquests, the English retained only a few ports and seaboard towns, Calais, Cherbourg, Brest, Bayonne, and Bordeaux. For a moment the invasion seemed stopped. End of section 12